So we are in our Curator Society series, and the whole idea for this series was that God has given us so much. God has given us this beautiful world to live in uh, and all of creation as a gift to us. God has given us the people that we live amongst. God has given us our time, however long we have on the face of this earth. It is a gift. And God has given us also things as well. He's given us gifts and skills, and he's given us wealth, and he's given us all sorts of things that we have at our disposal. But these things are gifts. They are not necessarily ours to possess. They're not ours to hold on to. They are not ours um, to, to try and amass and then do with what, however we please. Uh, They are gifts that are given with a purpose. There is a responsibility that comes from being given these gifts. And rather than living in a consumer society, which we are programmed to do, which just wants to get more and wants to consume more and wants to spend more and wants to hoard and wants to devour, wants to experience as much as we possibly can in this life, no matter what it costs me or anyone else, it's just to get more. That's consumer society. God had something different in mind. God had in mind a race of people that would be mindful of the beauty of the world, that would be mindful of these precious gifts that have been handed to us, and to take care with them. And the word curator was was a way of trying to explain uh, the kind of mandate that God has given us as human beings, that he's dignified us with, that we are not consumers. We're not here to go forth and consume the earth. We are here to take care of it. We're here to enjoy it, to love it, to learn about it, but then also to form it and fill it and cause it to thrive. So we're here to cause the earth to thrive. We're here to cause humanity to thrive. We're here for his purposes and to become the people that God has created us to be. And uh, so we've already looked at creation care very, very, very briefly in an all-age service. Um, We looked at the importance of looking after God's creation. We've already looked at uh, looking after our neighbors, these people that God has gifted to us that are in our immediate community, how people are not something to be used for our own benefit, but they are, I truly am my brother's keeper. I truly am uh, given the gift of looking after those whom God has put in my sphere of influence. And uh, we're going to be accountable for God for how we looked after those who, whom he has given us. We looked at who is my neighbor and what does it look like to truly care for our neighbors. And so today we are looking at time. <sighs> Curators of time. That sounds so Doctor Who. I'm excited about that. Let's see if this is going to behave today. Come on. Come on. We did run through this. It was working beautifully earlier. Hooray. Okay. So, what does the Holy Spirit say about time? First thing I want to get across today is that time is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. When you read Genesis 1, you, you read that the earth began formless and void, that it had no structure, it had no time over it. It was just sort of hanging there in a timeless state. And then God began to form life on the earth, and he introduced time as a way of cre- dividing one creative experience from another. So he began with, with day one, 
And he said, let there be light, and there was light. And then you see him start to separate night and day. You see him start to to bring things in in waves where he says, and then there was evening, and then there was morning, and that was the third day or the fourth day. So God is busy creatively, lovingly forming the earth into being, but he imposes upon that process a sense of time. He wants the earth to have those rhythms set within it. So he introduces this balance between rest time and creativity and productivity time. And it's part of the habitat that we as human beings are intended to live in. We have to respect this rhythm of time. So you and I can enjoy time. It's supposed to be part of our enriched experience of being upon the earth. We can enjoy sunrises. We can enjoy births. We can enjoy the beginnings of exciting projects and exciting things, exciting chapters and phases in our lives. We can also enjoy sunsets and endings and beloved farewells and completions of things. It's part of our experience. It's how we're intended to live. And we need it, actually. Without the gift of time, we get sick very quickly. Did you know that? Human beings that have spent time in solitary confinement where there is no uh, light cycles... If they're they're shut in a place either of total darkness or with artificial light, and there is no concept of time, no concept of day or night, whether they're supposed to be resting or awake, psychologically, human beings find it very, very, very difficult to exist in that environment. Because we can't gauge where we are within the day. We can't gauge where we are within our lives. We don't know how long we've been in a place or when we're going to get out. And there's something about that removal of the element of time for people that is so psychologically damaging for people. That's why it's one of the cruelest forms of punishment. So time itself is a real gift to us. And we live in it in such an unconscious way, like a fish lives in water. It's just part of the environment that we exist in. So it's a gift. That's the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember is that the Bible describes time in two overlapping realities. You've got eternity, which is vast and glorious and is going to be experienced in joyful, creative rest. It's this kind of never-ending existence of God. And then you've got the present, the temporal. Come on, behave. It's trying. (laughs) Love you, Barry. It's doing something else. Anyway, you got the temporal. And it too can be glorious, but it can also be painful and a bit broken and a bit of a mixed bag of experiences. But because... All we know is governed by time. We find it difficult to comprehend eternity. We struggle with it. I'll come back to that. I was going to share with you some quotes, and these are, some of these are quite good. A man who dares to waste one hour of his time has not discovered the value of life. That was Charles Darwin. I'm going to come over here and see if it works. 
There you go. It's a range thing. Your time is limited. Don't waste it living someone else's life. Steve Jobs, the Apple guy. It's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Is that true? We all have the same amount of time. Time is non-refundable. Use it with intention. Like that. We must use time creatively and forever realize that time is always ripe to do right. Nelson Mandela. That's a great quote. There's a few funny ones. Time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. <laughs> Love that. Aside from Velcro, time is the most mysterious substance in the universe. You can't see it or touch it, yet a plumber can charge up up, charge you upwards of 75 pounds per hour for it without necessarily fixing anything. <laughs> and bring it back down to earth. Mother Teresa, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow has not yet come. We only have today. Let us begin. There you go. The world is full of great quotes about time. But this whole idea that time is both eternal and temporal, is really hard for us to get our heads around. If we try and understand, not just through the businessman's eyes, not just through the, self, the life help eyes, not just through the philosopher that's trying to help us to live well and seize the day and carpe diem, not just uh, in those kind of fridge magnet kind of sayings, but, but, but in what is in God's heart for us of how we use time. We have to try and get our heads around this difficult concept of the eternal versus the temporal. And um, I was trying to th think, where, where have I seen this well explained? And uh, I can't really think of many places where I've seen this kind of idea of the eternal uh, explained really well. But the, the, I think the best I can come up with is Lord of the Rings. Has everyone seen The Fellowship of the Ring? Put your hands up if you've seen The Fellowship of the Ring. See how many people that are actually know what I'm talking about. Okay, most of you. The rest of you, this is going to go completely over your heads. Um, but <laughs> the concept of Rivendell, okay? So this is where the elves live. And the elves are eternal. They wear these little kind of necklacey things that are, represent their immortality. So they are eternal. They go on and on and on. And the elves are these amazing kind of uh, super wise, very kind of um, demure people who understand everything there is about life. They're very kind of, they're sort of wistful and they're, they're sort of deeply wise. And I must, they have to, people have to take things to the elves because the elves understand the ancient way of things, okay? Because they've been around for generation after generation after generation. And everything in, in the world of the elves is beautifully crafted and beautifully balanced. And it's a place where people go to recover and to get well and to learn where to go on. And then there's this point where the Fellowship of the Ring, if you don't like Tolkien, I'm really sorry, but uh, there's a point where the Fellowship of the Ring, which is hobbits and, and men, come together in Rivendell. And it's there that they understand that they have a quest to try and take this ring into the fires of Mordor. What makes those scenes so poignant is the way that the temporary nature of the hobbits and the men, of their lives, that they have this short life to spend somehow, is set against this eternal life of the elves. And there is just something very profound about this band of people that only have a few short years on this earth. 
are willing to sacrifice their lives for, to do something good with the small amount of time that they have. And it creates some really beautiful scenes. The Bible frequently describes our lives as being temporal, as being short, as being shorter than we imagine it to be. So it uses all sorts of word pictures to describe how our lives are. And one of the ways it describes our life is like grass. Is anyone getting annoyed with this yet? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are, we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness is with their children's children. So here we've got that eternal set against the temporal. In, it, from the eyes of eternity, our lives are like grass. Again and again, this, this idea that we're like grass keeps coming. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. Do we have sincere love for each other? Yes, we do. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Amen. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Once again, we are like grass. We're like the flowers of the field. We flourish so quickly, and yet we are gone so quickly. In the same way that you can watch the grass start to grow in, in March, and it, it comes really quickly. And you've got that beautiful moment in May, June, where it's in a lot of fields that have been left to go, it's long enough that the wind catches it, and it's like waves. Do you love that? Seeing the shimmering of the fields. And within a few short weeks more, it turns brown, and it starts to go over. And it, the fields can once again start looking really quite shabby. And before you know it, winter's here again, and, and it's gone. Life is fast. Life is fast. The, the Bible says that we are to consider our lives as being moving quickly through the seasons. Psalm 144 describes our time like a breath. Each generation like a single inhalation and exhalation of the earth. The same psalm says that our days are like a fleeting shadow. As the sun rises in the morning and the shadows move and then they are gone. You can't find them. In the book of Job, when he's really going through it and his days are full of pain and suffering, he says, my days are, like, are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Have you ever watched anyone doing old-fashioned weaving and how fast they move? He said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. That all sounds rather depressing, doesn't it? Well, if you'd have been going through what Job was going through, you'd be feeling the same. So th this speaks not just of the relative quickness of life compared to eternity. It also speaks of the elasticity of life. You know, sometimes life can go so fast. Sometimes it can feel like it goes very slow, can't it? 
depending on what you're experiencing, there's a kind of weird stretchiness about time. When we're suffering, a day can sometimes feel like an eternity. And when we're stressed, our days can speed up to an uncontrollable pace. Same 24 hours, experienced completely differently. When we're doing something really interesting, like um, a demanding creative project that we're really excited about, when we're kind of neck deep in what could be our life's work and things are moving really quickly and we're firing on all cylinders, sometimes you can look at your watch thinking it's lunchtime and it's already four o'clock because the, the day has just sped past so fast because you're interested, you're engaged with what you're doing. I don't know if it's my age, but sometimes I feel like I, I, I can lose a whole month. Anyone like that? Where did September go? It was, it was August a minute ago, I swear it. Anyone ever feel like that? It's bonkers, isn't it? It gets, uh, older, it gets faster the older you get. When you're a kid, it doesn't feel that way. Do you remember endless summers when you were a kid? I, I swear that six-week holiday was about six months long. It just went on and on and on, endless playing, just for ages, and then you were almost surprised when school came around again. And I think when you're young, you read these sayings about grass and shadows, and you go, yeah, man, I get that. It's, that's profound. Seize the day. Carpe diem. But the older you get, you start to realize it's like that. It does. It flies by. I, suddenly, I'm listening. This, this word is beginning to speak to me. Time feels short. It feels precious. And because it's precious, it can be squandered or it can be invested just like any other finite resource, we need to work out what we're going to do with it. We've only got one shot at every moment, and then it's gone. And God gives, gives each of us a personal mandate to manage our time carefully. His gift of time comes to us with a set of expectations. It's not just for us to squander as we like. The Bible is crystal clear that our job is to invest our time in ways that honor God and fulfill His purposes for our lives. Jesus emphasized this again and again and again. How many of Jesus' parables are about how we use time? Time is at the center of nearly all of them. Seriously, read Jesus' parables. Most of them have a time element. There are not all of them, but most of them do. Think about the parable of the tenants. So this is where Jesus tells a story about the, uh, a landowner who represents God he creates a uh, vineyard, and then he rents it to tenants. And he expects these tenants then to produce a crop, and he goes away for a long time. And then he sends someone back to receive some of the, a, a portion of the crop that's coming out of the vineyard. And they, kill, they, send, they beat them and send them away. And then he sends another one. They beat them and send them away. And then he sends his son, and they say, here's the son, let's kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours. What will God do to those tenants of the vineyard? Okay, So that's one story. But it involves God creating something, giving it to some others, and then withdrawing and letting them use their time. And it's how they use their time. It's how they, what they do with that that is important in the story of how they relate to the landowner. The parable of the faithful servant so this is found in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 12. All of them sh share about this one. And it's where the master has a house to run, 
He has a set of expectations of how things need to run, and he gives it to someone to look after. Same kind of deal. And, he, and in the story, he talks about returning an, at an unexpected time. And how will he find his servant? Will he find them looking after the house as expected and feeding everybody and looking after everybody and keeping the affairs moving? Or will he find them eating and drinking and abusing the other servants? And he say, it says in that one, it says, because the master was a long time coming, the, the um, unrighteous steward, he then gives himself to eating and drinking and being unkind to everybody else, just meeting his own needs, basically. So there's a time delay, and it seems longer than it should be. And it's that, it's, it's that time that tests what is in the heart of the person. You've got the parable of the talents. So God dishes out talents to people and then goes away on a long, for a long period of time. And he, he wants to test us as to what we're going to do over a period of time with the talents that we've given You see what I mean? Parable of the ten virgins. Five are found ready and waiting when the bridegroom returns. Five have gone off to get more oil because they weren't organized with how they were using their time. They didn't get organized. They didn't stay focused. They dropped the ball. That is a lot of time-centered teaching. Jesus was particularly keen to get across to us that how we use our time is really, really important. And I haven't even talked about the growing parables, which is all about a seed being planted, and then time tests to see how that seed grows. He really wanted us to get this one. So in all of these stories, the servants have to be self-motivated. They don't know how long they have before the master returns and says, so what have you been up to? Every single one has a moment of account where God wants to come face to face with his servant and say, okay, how have you used this time I gave you? How should I relate to you based on what you chose to do with your time? Have you curated your time carefully or have you wasted your time taking it for granted? And in these stories, some make him smile because they never forgot that their time was entrusted to them and they revealed their love for their Lord with their use of time. And others frustrate him because they don't care about their given responsibility and they wasted their gift of time in one of two ways, either by doing nothing or by building their own empire. So the sheer volume of these what-did-you-do-with-your-time teachings should give us a reason to ask ourselves, what does my use of time say about my faithfulness to God? Let's ask ourselves that this morning. What, did, what does my use of time say about my faithfulness to God? If God rocks up unexpectedly today and wants to look at my life with me, is it going to be a happy experience or is it going to be an embarrassing one? Are you feeling challenged? This has challenged me, just putting this together. I want to be clear, though. I don't think these parables are asking us just to do more and more and more. I don't think they are calling for us to be a nation of workaholics. I don't think that's what God is aiming at. But all of them are asking us to be intentional, to arrange our time so that our priorities are clear and that we're actually doing the things that God has asked us to do. 
All of them are an encouragement not to opt out or to give up or to pursue a selfish goal instead of a God-given one. So it's a high calling. And I want you just to imagine for a moment what it would look like for an entire race of people who have learned to curate their time well, who have learned to give over their, their moments and their days to God in a way that pleases Him. Just imagine the worship that would rise from that community. That from the, begin, from the rising of the sun to the, to the time it's going down, there would be people in that community that were worshiping the Lord. Just imagine the things that would be created as people just submit their processes and they submit their creative ideas to the Lord and they develop them with God and they pursue them. They don't sit on their hands, they actually go for them. Nobody would be hungry or thirsty or lost or lonely because time will finally be used as it was intended. In a consumer society, we're programmed to plot our time into, uh, sorry, to plow our time into acquiring more things and escapism and personal pleasure pursuits. That's how we're programmed. But as curators, we're called to do something much higher, something that will ripple through eternity. So you may be sitting there feeling condemned this morning, and that's the last thing that I want you to feel. You may be saying in your heart, do you know what? I'm not sure I've curated my time very well in my life. I think I've wasted much of my life. And you may be sitting there thinking, do you know what? I think I habitually waste most of my time now. Well, if that's you, take heart, because there is hope. See, Jesus told another parable. And uh, we're going to read this one from our Bibles. So turn to Matthew and chapter 20. This parable we're about to read highlights another vital response of God to our use of time. And it's absolutely wonderful. And it's worth reading verse by verse. Matthew 20 and from verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he went to work. And at nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard as well. And then at noon, again, he went out. And at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And at five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around. And he asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one's hired us. The landowner told him, then go and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and to pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came in to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, those people worked only an hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you've paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Did you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. 
I want to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So here we've got a portrait of God as one who goes out and finds people who are not employed in his service, who have wasted their time, and he takes them on even when it's late in the day. Even when it comes to the moment when every, uh, sorry, and when it time, comes to the moment when everyone's time is measured and rewarded, he's super generous to the ones who have wasted most of the day. Don't you love that? That gives hope to every single one of us. If you're sitting here thinking, I've wasted my life, God is super generous to those who have wasted their lives. Just put aside the fact that some people are really ticked off that they've been there since 6 a.m. working. Just put that aside for a minute, because I think we've all got that side to us as well that thinks that does sound a little bit unfair. And just see how God loves to be. He is so generous. He is so kind. Even when we've wasted most of the day, even when we've only been in the vineyard for an hour, even when we've only turned to him in the last little bit of our lives, it seems to me that God cares more about where we find ourselves in the present and where we intend to be in the future than he does about how we spent our past. He always seems to care about where our heart is right now. And when, when the time comes to look at your life, whenever that may be, he's not going to look over the whole span of your life necessarily and condemn you for the years that you've wasted. He's going to look at where your heart is right now and where your love is right now and how you're spending your time right now and how you intend to spend it tomorrow. That's what's going to matter most in that moment. And Jesus took this whole teaching to an extreme level when he's there bleeding and dying on the cross. And there's a dude next to him who has wasted his entire life hurting people, being a thief. I don't think the Romans crucify thieves that have just stolen a few petty things. Actually, this, the crucifixion was reserved for the most awful of criminals. The thief on the cross next to Jesus was a notorious thief. He had hurt many, many, many people. He had spent his life stealing from people, getting as much as he can at other people's expense. He had wasted his life. And yet in one moment, he chose to have solidarity with Christ and to stand with Jesus when it most mattered. In that one last dying breath, he said about Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus, in that moment, just with that statement, turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What, that's enough? A few words with his dying breath, and that's enough? to gain the same reward that others have gained from a whole life of service? Wow. That is extreme generosity. That is amazing. Jesus cared more about how that man spent his last breath than how he'd spent his entire life. And he was willing to forgive him on that basis and give him eternity. And everything that paradise means, that's incredible. So this responsibility that gives, God gives each of us to use our time well is also tempered by incredible grace that God will take us where we are in the moment. I absolutely love that. God is a God of continuous second chances. And the time is always right to turn from distraction and to serve him once again. 
By the time you put your head on the pillow tonight, you can once again be one who is faithfully reorientated towards him and his purposes. I remember when I was in school, um, do you remember I told you a little while ago I used to like carving stone? Does anyone remember me talking about carving a head out of stone? I've got another carving story for you. Um, didn't do masses of stone carving. This is probably the only other one I did. Um, but um, when I was doing my GCSEs, uh, I loved the art block. Um, I, I used to go there quite often uh, at lunchtimes and after school. And it was when, particularly when we were doing this study on um, emotions, and we were looking at famous artists, and we had to see if we could um, portray an emotion in the style of a famous artist. And I chose Henry Moore, who's a sculptor. Um, there's a beautiful Henry Moore sculpture up at Dartington Gardens. And um, I, I got quite into him. And I decided that I was going to sculpt the emotion of feeling isolated. And so I came up with this sculpture, which was uh, somebody sitting on the floor um, with their arms folded over their knees, with their head down, but in the style of Henry. I was very impressed with myself for this. And so uh, I had in my, in my head the idea of what this was going to look like. And I explained this to my art teacher. I said, I want to do a massive sculpture, really big one, which is going to be really impressive. It's going to look just like a Henry Moore sculpture. And she was like, OK, you know, I'll take that on. You, you're, you're quite dedicated. You're here quite a lot. We'll, we'll give it a go. And she told her technician to build me this massive block of stone out of um, like thermalite blocks. You know, the this, this stuff is almost like, um, it's like an aero bar. It's got like um, whole uh, bubbles in it. Really easy to carve. You can carve it with a teaspoon. So anyway, I, I, I came in, and to my joy, there was this trolley with a massive block of stone with my name on it. How cool is that? I got to get carving on this thing. And in my head, I could see exactly what this thing was going to look like, and I went at it. I spent lunch times and after school times hammering away at this thing. And... Um, it probably was towards the end of the first term that I realized it wasn't quite turning out as I imagined. You know, like when you're a kid and you go for it and you start drawing and it just doesn't work out. Um, this thing was getting worse and worse and worse. And the more I hacked at it, the less it looked like I, I wanted it to in my head until I got so frustrated with it. I was hacking away one day after school and uh, the head fell off. And any normal person would just sort of glue it back on once they got to that far. But I was so frustrated with this thing, it just sort of went on the floor and I just hit it. And it sort of broke into several pieces. And I looked at this thing and it was this headless Frankenstein version of what I wanted to create. And I remember thinking, I've just wasted all of this time and effort. I felt so ashamed, I felt so embarrassed, I just put my tools down and I avoided the art block for weeks. And my art teacher noticed that this horrible, unfinished piece was still taking up most of her art room, uh, and I hadn't been back. And I even avoided my art lesson when it was in, uh, in the um, timetable. And eventually, my art teacher caught me in a corridor. He said, do you, do you think we should have a conversation about what's going on with that big lump of stone in the corner of the art room? And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. Look, I just messed it up. I've completely ruined it. What I was trying to do, I haven't been able to achieve. I don't think I can rescue it from where it is, and I really genuinely don't know what to do about it, and I feel really embarrassed about it. And she said, okay, well, um, do you want to look at some ideas of where you can take it from where it is and create something? I said, no, I just feel rubbish about it. 
And she said, okay, leave it with me, and, um, but I want you to come to your next art lesson. You can't miss any more art lessons. And um, in my next art lesson, when I arrived in my classroom, there was a fresh block of stone that the technician had created. Um, uh, and I didn't cry, because you don't do that when you're a 15-year-old lad in school. But I felt like it because I thought this was amazing. And she, the technician, who was a lovely guy who I'd got to know from hanging out in the art room so much, he popped in to say, everything all right, and I just thanked him. But for me, it was, it was a fresh crack at what I'd set out to do. And my art teacher actually sat with me and started drawing some charcoal lines on this thing before I got my hammer and chisel out. Uh, and together, she was like, okay, so where's the head going to be? Where's the legs going to be? What sort of proportions do you want? And, and we sort of drew, drew some lines. And then I did a little bit, and we drew some more lines. And I did a bit more, and we drew some more lines. And all of a sudden, that which was in my mind began to emerge from the stone. And I probably spent more time in that art room on the second attempt than I did on the first, because my heart was invested in it. And do you know what? Some of you need to hear this this morning, that God isn't a God that just will look at how you've made a mess of any chapter of your life and just moves it away. He will always give you a fresh block of life to start with. Always. And we can be like those people who avoid God. If we've made a hash of it, if we've been distant from God, if we've wasted the last few months on Netflix and not praying or whatever it is, or pursuing some goal that has actually turned out quite fruitless, or we've messed up our marriage, or we've messed up a relationship. Sometimes we can look back over the years and say, my life is irretrievable. And God doesn't just try and fit stuff back together from the broken pieces of your past. He gives you a fresh life to work with. He picks you up where you are. He says, stop avoiding me. I want you back. And I'm going to help you to start drawing some lines for, the where, for where you're going. Not just from where you come from. He'll take you from wherever you are and he'll lead you forward. Do you believe that? He's a good God. It's about where my heart is right now. Right now we can learn to curate our time in a fresh way. So let's get really, really practical. To curate your time well, this gift that God has given you, you need to learn to reflect. Reflect. Does the way I spend my time reflect who God has called me to be? It's a, day, it's a, it's a habit. Every once in a while, just ask yourself that question. Is, am I spending my time well? Am I, pray through that question. Ask God, am I spending my time well? Where, where, where is my time a little bit off? Number two, make choices that develop godly habits. How can I reorganize moments in my day to nurture and fulfill God's call on my life? It's as simple as that. Just to organize the moments. Not to think about your whole life. How can I do this today? And then commit. Commit to those changes even when you don't feel like it. And you know what? That, that's where discipline comes in. How am I going to intentionally live? And that is easier when you remember that your time is not your own. It belongs to him ultimately. It's always manageable. How do I know it's almost always manageable? It's because we only have one moment at, one moment at a time. If you look at the, your future and you think, well, that seems too big. The rest of my life seems too much of a big task to try and get right and to try and manage for God. Well, don't worry about it. You've only got one moment at a time anyway. We can only deal with things one little bit at a time. 
Have you ever heard the saying, you look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves? It's the same with time. If you look after the moments, your years will look after themselves. Maybe we could care about each day, just the moments we wake up. Can we care about how we wake up? How we begin the day? Let's be intentional about how we start the day. Maybe we could daily carve out just a few moments of worship before the rush of the day. Perhaps we could carefully use the moment we say goodbye to our families or when we close the door on our homes and thank God for the homes that he's given us. Maybe we could get better at using the moment that we greet our work colleagues or the people that we meet in our day. Maybe we could use the moment before we eat just to punctuate our day with a moment of worship and gratitude. Maybe we could make better use of the moment we walk in the door at home. If you come back to greet people, let's make use of that moment. If you come back to a home and uh, you, don't, you live alone, come back to that moment of solitude where you meet the Lord as you walk in the door and you thank God that he's sharing that space with you. Perhaps we could take a little bit more care about the moments we spend in rest, how we relate to the people that are around us, but also what we watch and what we read. Is this a way, are we spending our rest time in a way that, that makes God smile? And then the moments before we sleep, can we stay in a way that brings delight to the Lord? If we habitually serve the Lord with love and thankfulness in our moments, we will honor him with our days, our years, and our lifetimes. We can be sure that we will one day stand before God unashamed and look into those big, joyful eyes of his and hear him say in a way that all of heaven can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What happens next is, is up to him. We can only imagine but it will be between us and him. And it will be his response to the way, we've, the way that we've curated our time in the short here and now. Amen.